0: Welcome back, everyone, to the Ugly American Werewolf in London rock and roll podcast recorded just off of Abbey Road here in London. I want to thank everybody who's returning after hearing part one last week's episode as we remember Rush and the memory of Neil Peart on the one-year anniversary of his passing. We've received a lot of great reception from the Rush community, especially on Twitter, as so many folks were remembering him on that day uh, and wanted to share their experiences with the community. And you can check us out at Ugly underscore Werewolf on Twitter. This week, we want to talk a little bit more about some of the other shows we saw. Yes, that fateful night in 1992 that we camped out for tickets for for the Roll the Bones show. That was great. Uh, but I saw them 11 more times in the 27 years after that, Uh, and Jackson and I want to explore that, plus talk about how they compare to some other great live bands that we've seen over the years. And we want to hear from you, so uh, let us know. What's your favorite era of Rush? What's your favorite album? Which albums would you like us to review here on The Wolf? Please let us know. As of now, sit back, relax, and check out part two of our two-part episode on Rush here on The Wolf. Was also figuring out where all I'd seen them, and so it was Orlando with you. I s- uh, on, saw him in Orlando on Roll the Bones. I saw them again in Orlando on Counterparts when you were living back home. Correct. Right. And, and I had to go with McKee.
2: <laughs>
0: and then I saw him in the Tampa Bay Ice Palace on Test for Echo. Then Vapor Trails and R30 were Indie Outdoors. Yeah, both were Indie Outdoors. And then 2007 went Pittsburgh. Then Indy, so that's three for Indy, then Jacksonville. Twenty ten was in Columbus. Yes. See, and then they went to Louisville the next year on that same tour, and we saw them in Louisville, obviously. It was one of those times where they release a certain amount of dates. Like, okay, Columbus is the nearest one, we're going to Columbus. Boom, you grab it. And then they release, you know, a second number of dates. Like, oh well, yeah, now they're coming Uh, to Louisville, right? You know. Not that I'm sad I saw them twice on the same tour or anything, but that's that's what happened. And then the fourth time was in Indy, only this wasn't at Noblesville Amphitheater. This was at the Banker's Life Fieldhouse downtown where the Pacers play, which is really a very nice arena.
2: Okay. Yeah, I've been, I've been there before, and I can't remember. I saw something there, and I was like – it was one of those shows. I was with my brother, and I was like, eh, whatever the show was. But, you know, if you got tickets, I'll go, but whatever,
0: and yeah yeah. Well, I've seen a lot of shows outdoors in India over the years. I mean, I I saw Cheap Trick and Aerosmith, and I got to meet Steven Tyler. I saw I've seen Tom Petty a couple of times. Once when Steve Winwood opened for him. Once on his last tour. I saw Van Halen there back in the day on the F U C K tour, right before you got you and me saw him in Orlando. Yeah, I've seen Iron Maiden there. Alice Cooper open for him. I've seen a lot of great shows at that amphitheater. But this was in the Fieldhouse. And then the last show than i ever saw r40 was in chicago yeah we went to the united center where the bulls play and uh, and saw him there
2: speaking of outdoor in san antonio they had an outdoor deal like the noblesville thing we saw dave matthews in mm. like probably maybe 2005 2006 something like that mm-hmm. and i remember sitting there thinking it's 2006 who i mean like dave matthews like yeah they had a couple of hits you know years ago but who's going to show up You couldn't have fit another person in that place. I know. Could not have fit another person. They were packed to the gills.
0: I've seen him like six or seven times now, and I really hope there's no more, to be honest. (laughs) Honest to God. And I did really kind of dig him for a while. There was a couple years in college, but I think I was just kind of hungry for new music, and everybody liked him, and you could kind of dance to it. So I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll give him a – Shot. He does a bean all along the watchtower. You know, I give him some cred there. But yeah, no, no, thanks. <laughs>
2: the, the thing for me about that was everybody's got in the band is top notch. I mean, they're they're yeah. you know top of the but but this I just don't like those songs. And I but I think he's got like a Grateful Dead thing now where it's like the same. You know, oh, I've been to forty eight Dave Matthews shows and he's he does a big one every year somewhere down in Florida and everybody, you know, the road trips down there to go. Oh, okay. Have, have fun.
0: I know. And the fact that I've gone to 12 Rush shows, you know, it sounds like a lot. And for the average person who hasn't seen them once was like, if you've seen them once, why would you see them again? I know that sounds like a lot, but Rush has people who, you know, you'll see them at the show. What well, is this for you? Oh, this is 47. I got to 48 to, you know, two nights from now and 50, you know, in three weeks or whatever. 119 shows, people who've been going since the 70s, you know?
2: And I would I would say that, like, oh, yeah, that, that's a lot. But, again, go and look at those set lists. They're not all the same. Yeah, they've got a couple of same songs in there, but mm-hmm. they, they do a pretty good job of changing it up every tour. Sure. And throwing in songs. Oh, I forgot all about that one. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, let's face it, if you go see, like, Aerosmith, it's probably the same thing every single time.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, here's the thing. Because artists can do – will do – toys in the attic, you know, all the way through, or, you know, we'll, they, they can go through different eras and focused on different things. I like that about Iron Maiden, that they'll go out and tour a new album, and they'll focus on stuff from, like, the last 20 years because they know that they're young kids who are Iron Maiden fans, and this is the Maiden they like. And then the next tour, they'll go out and do a Greatest Hits thing because they know there's people like us who are older, and they we want to hear the older stuff. And so bands have the ability to, to mix it up. There's always some you have to play.
2: Correct, yeah, because you've got it. You've got to get that. You've got to hold. You got to hold both people. I mean, I think I think there are like Maiden fans that if they didn't play Number of the Beast, they'd be okay with that. If you could throw them some other stuff, yeah. Who was it? Eddie Trunk said on that uh, Aerosmith deal in Vegas, like if you were a real hardcore fan, you should go early because they were going to play some old stuff. Mm-hmm. But he knew he was. He knew that after a while, they just change it to like greatest hits because all of the people would have already seen it and now you want to get the other people in. Two. <laughs> and I actually liked the later shows where Neil would split up the drum solo. Like he play a little bit and then they go into a couple more songs then he play a little bit more and then, because it's almost like when you play it at one time it's almost like it's overload. you got to kind of come down a bit and then I can take a little more now.
0: Absolutely true.
2: And it also gave him a chance, I, I understand it was to give him a chance to rest so he didn't have to blow the whole thing out in one deal, but yeah, give me a little bit at a
0: time. And they they call it the rhythm method, but being able to see Neil do his drum solo, and yes, he he did mix it up. There were some parts of it somewhat similar to Eddie Van Halen in that you knew certain pieces were coming, um, but he always kept it fresh. He always added new things, and sometimes he added new video. In the back, or maybe he was playing with Buddy Rich or somebody like that at the same time. And the overhead cam, right? He had the direct overhead cam. So you could see his whole kit and see him spinning around and, and hitting all the pieces of it. Just the athleticism and intelligence that it takes to do that. Not to mention the intelligence that he obviously had as a writer and a wordsmith. He was special. He was a major loss to music around the world
2: and i was i went through last night and i listened to all the world's a stage mm-hmm. the first live album and i it's i like it because it's more straight ahead rock and just the there's no mistakes and i understand it's a live album and, you know you maybe go back and touch some things up but i mean there's no i think that rush kind of suffered a little bit from the van halen deal where people. They focused on Neil because he was he was an amazing drummer. He was, you know, mm-hmm. head and shoulders above everybody else. But if you really go back and listen, Lee and Lifeson are amazing players. Just the, the fact that all three of them came together and were able to to make this music is just amazing. Whereas most bands you got one or two guys that are good and everybody else is a fill Nope. Standard on their own.
0: It's amazing amazing how much sound comes from those three guys. That's what's always so amazing to me when I would go see them, hear all the sound that's coming from them. They don't pipe any of that in. They actually play it. Now, when I see Iron Maiden, I'm not shocked because there's six guys on stage now. They have three lead guitar players. So, yeah, I mean, of course, they've got got twice as many guys making all that sound. Even if you go see someone who's a little softer in his approach – like Steve Winwood, and it's more of a rich sound, and there's lighter tones in it, and you want to hear a flute, you want to drown down the bass a little bit so you can hear maybe some of the piano, whatever it might be. But he'll have six or seven guys out there to be able to create all this and do it both ways, right? They can do the intricate soft sounds, but they can also do this big, fill the arena, progressive, heavy rock that you don't see much anymore. Um, I mean, what, right. what bands these days are inheriting their mantle?
2: I don't think there's anybody. I don't think there's anybody that can do that. And, and the, the crappy part is now it's too easy to backfill. It's too easy to put other tracks in mm-hmm. through the sound system now that you may not catch on. Like you know, And that's what I tell my wife all the time. Is I can't stand it when you can hear there's a double part in the song, and you know there's only one of that person. Right. Like, for, like, you know, okay, now there's two guitar, at least two guitar parts now. There's only one guitar player in the band. Or how is the singer harmonizing with himself? Right. That's, you know, that you amazing. can't do live. Yeah.
0: John Wetton backed by John Wetton is really amazing. Correct. Actually, you know? Yes.
2: <laughs> a- yeah. Axel Rose and Axel Rose singing on this. But, like, in, in a passage to Bangkok, if you listen to the thing at the end, when, uh, or not the end, but when Lyson's going into a solo, mm-hmm. there is no bass part. Getty Lee is playing. He's play, I think he's doing it with this beat or maybe the keyboard. He's playing guitar chords, but there is no bass part. It's not like they, what I'm saying, it's not like they pipe in ah. the chord part and he played, no, it drops out so he can play that.
0: Absolutely. It's, it's, it's fantastic yeah. it, it, and extraordinary. And I don't know how deft you have to be to be able to sing lead. Singing lead is a very physically demanding job. You sing lead, you play some sick bass, and then you also play, Keyboard with your feet all at the same time. I, I've seen video of sometimes he's just singing and playing bass, sometimes he's playing bass and playing the keyboard, sometimes he's singing playing keyboard. But there are some times you can see him doing all three at once, and I want to see another human being do that and do that on the same level. Until then, I have to hold Getty Lee in incredibly high esteem, and I don't care what the naysayers say. The fact that he can do that, show me someone else who can do it. And then and then I'll say, okay, well, maybe he's not so great.
2: <laughs> and you're right. Not only is he doing all three things, but all of the things that you're doing are incredibly hard. His bass parts are very intricate, very complex. It's, he's not just thumping along with the bass drum and singing. And you're right. And sometimes, I mean, I don't even know how you would do that. Like when he does subdivisions, you've got the bass in front of you. And then you've got to reach over it and play the keyboard parts. And sing at the same time. Yeah, it looks like he looks like a one man band guy at that point in time with the drums strapped to his back right. and the cymbals and yeah.
0: And, He's got and, a little chimpanzee out collecting quarters and stuff. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but and to do it live is insane. With and you know once you start you can't stop. That's my that's my thing. That's why I love Y Y Z too because once they start or once the main part starts, it's three different parts and you can't. It's like uh, we're gonna go. I'm going to meet you back here at the end, but in between, everybody's on their own.
0: Well, you, you mentioned thumping along to the beat, which a lot of bass players can get away with. And certainly, if you don't know how to play any instrument and you need to learn how to play it in a week, playing bass, you know, is open two and four, just on the on the bass, you can play a lot of different songs if you can just hit those three notes, you know, over and over again. But Getty is someone who really turned me on to the value of bass. As a younger person, I really focused on the guitar and you can't miss the drums because they're really creating the beat. And everybody tends to follow the singer and wants to hear the lyrics at some point. But Getty showed me that the bass is its own independent instrument. It's not just necessarily the rhythm section and thumping along. And you can hear these cool bass lines and throughout Rush's history, through any song you want, there's all sorts of incredible bass lines in there, which I feel like came back heavy again on Presto after a long techno. 80s era kind of forgetty when he was doing a lot of keyboard but then it helped me pick out other bass players like chris squire from yes or even somebody like a geezer butler from black sabbath where if you just sit there and listen in and focus on the bass and listen wow you know somebody's doing something pretty special there he's a big i don't know influence on me in that way yeah and, and then
2: then i go back to i go back to um free will if you listen to that solo part my head explodes every single time because he starts off he starts the solo off then when Lyson comes in he does not go back to anything easy he's playing down he's playing his own part down underneath Lyson soloing and then you got Neil on the in the back end doing his own thing and again you don't have anybody to follow along with if Mm -hmm. you fall off the trail that's it and I think that back to your point about something along with the drums the more guitar players you have in the band unless you're steve harris the more the <laughs> bass kind of gets pushed to just you know thump, 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 thump. Right. but yeah guys once you get into that then you start with like john Entwistle, like you listen to that and it's like mm-hmm. oh yeah he's doing he's doing his own thing screw everybody else i'm i'm playing my own part and i think that this is a whole nother rabbit hole we go down to but black sabbath is way better both Bill Ward and Geezer Butler, get they don't get enough credit for what they did in that band.
0: They don't. I mean, I know Geezer wrote a lot of the lyrics with Tony, but I mean, Geezer Butler is so good on that thing.
2: <laughs> like if you listen if you listen to, I don't know what they call it, but it's the intro to NIV where he's just thumping along. Boom, ba-da-ba-boom, ba-da-ba-boom, That's fantastic. Just let him play. And then you go into that song. It's, it's awesome. But we digress.
0: I know. I know. Check out wishing well. Check out wishing well, which is boom 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 boom. I'm like, wow, man, that is really using the instrument. That's not just boom 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 boom, you know. And then and then you go into well, but I think the the point was that it's
2: really cool when you when you can get turned on to something else like that, like the you know, oh, the bass is is doing something different. And I really wonder. Then then you can go down the rabbit hole of like, what would Metallica have been like? had Cliff Burton not died. Because he, he liked to do some funky stuff on the bass.
0: Yeah. And
2: then when he passed, they kind of just said, okay, just, you know, whoever the bass player is, just go sit in the corner. Mm-hmm. Jason Newstead, you know, we'll do the thing, and then you come in and just do whatever you need to do. And then, you know, they, they got Robert uh, Trujillo now. and I mean, he's a great bass player, but I think even still, he's they don't let him out of the box enough. And so I wonder, Cliff, since he was a founding member and mm-hmm. had a voice... Would that have been different? I don't know.
0: Probably so. They did. When I went to see Metallica at Slane Castle in 2019, pre-COVID, which is an event they do every two or three years and has been going on for about 40 years, and they've had a lot of big acts there. I mean, you know, Thin Lizzy hosted it way back in the day. Queen's done it. U2's done it. Oasis. Madonna. I think the Stones have done it. Right. And they've had big shows of the year, and Metallica was the lead act when when I got to go. And they did let him come out and, and sing No Nay Never uh, on the guitar. Um, he, he, you know, it was like, okay, Lar- Lars and James get to go take a break or whatever, and, you know, now it's Robert's time. And so he, yeah. he he went down to the front of the snake pit or whatever. I think he eventually took Kurt with him and played No Nay Never, um, which was kind of fun.
2: I was going to say, that probably got a pretty rousing... Uh... Applause from that crowd.
0: Well, that and of course they pulled out whiskey in the jarro, okay. a Thin Lizzy classic, and that was uh, that was that was well received, and I was glad that they played it. <laughs> so, I mean, you only saw Rush a few times. What was your favorite set list? What was your least favorite?
2: Uh, well, I think for me, the the it, not issue, but the kind of the downer for the last one I saw was Clockwork Angels, mm-hmm. and while it was it was good. I think that my favorite set was the roll the Bones set because they they just had more more of a mix in there. And you know, it was the first time I'd seen them and yeah, when they when they hit limelight, like I thought my head was gonna explode. It just sounded so great. And what, like we talked about before, I didn't realize they hadn't played it for a while. So it right. was the combination of hearing that and then having everybody in the audience freak out. And just that just supercharged the whole thing.
0: It's great. They, they have not play Limelight. They play Force 10. Most of their big 80s hits are, are stuff you would have gotten off Chronicles, like Free Will, Distance, Distant Early Warning, Time Stand Still, Big Money, Subdivisions, got to play Subdivisions. Closer to the heart, Tom Sawyer, Spirit of the Radio, plus stuff from the last two albums, right? Presto and Roll the Bones. Plus it's our first ever Rush show. We camped out for those seats. We had to see it that's pretty fantastic now what might be might beat it for me is 4 years later on test for echo because at this point they had dropped the opening act It was an evening with Rush, and they did a couple of sets. And if you look at that, yes, heavy on some new stuff uh, with Driven and Half the World and things like that. Recent stuff like Animate. But, you know, they did Temples of Syrinx. They did, you know, 2112 in a big way. They still did Subdivisions and Free Will. They did Natural Science, uh, which is a great one off of permanent waves a nice you know mm-hmm. 10 minute one there still heavy on moving pictures with Tom Sawyer and yYz but you know it, it was just a good mix and it was a nice long show the one I liked the least snakes and arrows had a few new songs on it but they had brought back by that point between the wheels which is had become that was that's become maybe my favorite rush song it, it's it's hard to compete with songs that I heard 20, 30 years before, but that's kind of become one of my my favorites. The the one that I really kind of didn't care for was the second to last, and that was on Clockwork Angels tour because they played, and again, it was cool because they came with an orchestra, and they'd never done that before, and that's a risk, and it made some of the songs neat. But they did eight or nine songs off that album. Um, it's a concept yeah. album, so you had to tie most of that together. And I, I just, I didn't love it. If they'd done 2112 in its entirety, I might have freaked out with an orchestra over that. And they did some of that. Uh, but then, you know, they, they kind of they played some songs that were kind of just okay from the 80s. And I just... I feel like they missed, yeah, I mean, for so long, so many of these were just not great to me. I'm like, you missed so many good songs. I'm happy with what I did get to see. But yeah, it's just, you, they missed out. There's way too much of that one album in there. I'm sorry. That's just a band that has such a huge catalog. What was this, at this point, their 20th album? Something like that.
2: Yeah, Yeah, I think, I just think for, you know, for the two that I saw, the the '92 tour, the Roll of the Bones tour. If you were more of a casual fan, that was a better set list because, like you said, if you even if you just had Chronicles, you'd have been okay. Mm-hmm. They didn't have too many deep dives, and they played the, – the ones that they had from Roll the Bones were actually – I mean, they, to me, they were pretty big hits. I mean, Dreamline was all over the radio. Bravado they played. Roll the Bones was a big MTV deal. Mm-hmm. So if you went there and saw that, you, you'd have been okay. Whereas if on the Clockwork Angels, if you were not a big fan of that album, mm-hmm. yeah, you were going to be there like mm. – Another one? Okay, when are we going to get to something else? Right,
0: and it was it was a lot of that, you know. And now the R40 tour was cool because they started basically at the end of their career and worked their way backwards, and along the way they stripped down the set, uh, you know, because it was a huge set, and then, okay, it got a little bit smaller, and then at the end it was basically just them with a couple of amps like they were in their garage back in the early 70s or something like that. So it was neat, and the, and the videos kind of took you on a passage, but it really overlooked so much of the 80s stuff I mean, it went from roll the bones. They did distant early warning. They did subdivisions, and then they went into uh, stuff from moving pictures. So, and I know that's not the most popular piece with all the Rush fans, but it's a good piece. I mean, to me, and you know, R thirty to me was better in that it was it just a better. It was rounded better as far as the different times in Rush's. Career and had cooler deep cuts to me like Xanadu's in there, By Tour's in there, La villa Strangiato. You can't beat Red Sector A, Mystic Rhythms. They did do Between the Wheels on that tour. I think they maybe they brought it back for that tour and then they they didn't drop it again until until our forty. Yeah, I, I, the the trees, which is a great song. You know more stuff. Bravado for Roll the Bones, Red Barcetta. They they had a great. R30 was great too, but I, I mean, it still doesn't overtake that first experience, right? That that original <laughs> right. Rush show, and we camped out for the seats.
2: Yeah, and and I think yeah, it's always that. I've got a friend of mine that says nostalgia is a hell of a drug. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, nothing could beat that first one. And I think that's the other that's the other kind of cool thing too is you didn't have anything to compare it to. This was new; it was fresh. Mm-hmm. Everything else you could say, yeah, but they didn't do this or. Yeah. I wish they would have played it was just all I, I mean I just remember Log walking on. out of that show being excited but also feel like I got beat up a little bit because it was just there's so much coming at you it was just like I need a nap now that was a that yeah. was an experience there was no
0: disappointment you're right I mean it wasn't like oh man I wish they hadn't played that and played this instead of course you could always map out your very favorite they're never going to play that, right? Uh, again, he doesn't even get to do that. You know, he, he, he's, he gets outvoted sometimes, right? So uh, you're, it's never going to be perfect. But but that, to me, the 92 Roll the Bones, because we'd gotten the last two albums and, and listened to them pretty heavily. And then we'd known Chronicles. So they couldn't really play anything too deep without us knowing a little bit about it. Uh, and I, I thought it was fantastic. I'm glad that we got to see them together. And I'm sorry that 28 years later, that was the only time we ever got to see them together.
2: Yeah. And and again, it's, uh, it's one of those things where you have to, I guess you just kind of have to seize the opportunity because you never know when it's going to, when it's, you know, Oh, well next time we'll do that. Oh, there'll be a next, not anymore kids, not anymore. But I am glad that we got to do that. And that now that we can talk about it and kind of relive that memory, because I think for, a lot of people out there going to concerts is a really cool experience. It's a bonding experience. And not even with the people that you, well, not only with just the people that you go with, it's all people that are there too. Like, I want to say that I can't swear it was that show, but it was either that or the Van Halen show. Where we sat next to this dude, and the dude was talking about how he had seen David Lee Roth he had play on one of his solo tours because he wanted to see Steve Vai. Just having that, you know, just sharing that experience with that dude. And I remember then fast forward to when I, I went and saw the KISS reunion tour. Mm-hmm. And it was the same thing with my brothers. We were just sitting around just talking to people that, oh, man, I saw them in 78 and blah, blah, blah. And just, yeah, it was just like a communal experience. And you know, what do you think they're going to play? You know, How do you think this is going to go? And then to go into the show from there.
0: Yeah, I mean, most of your big life experiences, you are not alone, I find. And you do remember who you went to the show with. So I don't remember the set list unless I pull it up on the internet. Thanks to the internet, I can remember every song I've ever seen at every show. Even if I it was makes in the, it easier, yeah. Even if I was in the bathroom through a whole song, I can see what it was, right? <laughs> so, but but you remember? Oh yeah, I went with Gary to that show, or I went with you know, Hunt and Jordan to my first Stone show, or you know that yeah. kind of stuff. You remember who you were with, and then if you you know are lucky enough that they put out a DVD or a live album on it, you might have a nice souvenir from it and certainly for the most part when i see a band play live if they do put out a live album from that tour i'll pick it up because it's a great memory and i don't know why people don't do more instant live i went to see the allman brothers i don't know 13 14 years ago and they had a booth there's like instant live i'm like what's this they said you can get cds of this show right off the soundboard after the show and it's like twenty-five bucks, and if you want us to mail it to you, it's an extra five. Otherwise, you got to wait here after the show for us to give it to you. I'm like, all right. Well, it's gonna take them a while to to burn those for everybody, so I'm just I'll pay the five bucks, and you can ship it to me. And sure enough, it came a few days later, or a few a couple weeks later, three CDs. And you know, I know Pearl Jam was big into selling every one of their boots to every one of their shows. Like, yeah, let's let's put them all out there. Why not? And and I don't understand. I mean back in the day when you sold millions of records, you don't want those bootlegs out there. But now that you can't sell records anyway, this is a good way to sell the darn records, really. Is who I mean you're gonna sell thousands of those, tens of thousands, aren't you?
2: Well and the cool thing is with that, with that setup too, it's I, I know that there are a lot of live albums that have come out that they've messed with you know you you take out the crowd noise and you kind of maybe fill in some low spots but it's but that sounds like it's a direct what you heard is what you're going to get on that CD which is kind of cool uh you know kind of warts and all but i mean for something like the Almond brothers i'm sure they were pretty perfect the whole way through yeah they, jam- oh, yeah, yeah, they had you know, ron like-
0: haynes and derek trucks playing lead guitar yeah.
2: yeah exactly and then i'm sure pearl jam is in the same thing too they've been doing it so long they're not they're not out of sync at all
0: yeah they don't miss um, much
2: although i but speaking of pearl jam i was listening to the Howard stern was talking to eddie vetter and he, he stern played this clip of that song Chi mm-hmm. and he said glory he goes into glorified version of the song the song i hate and so he was like, oh, you don't like that song? And he was like, no. Nah. I mean, first of all, he didn't really remember it. But he was like, yeah, it was probably at the end of the show. My voice was shot at that point in time. I got to go up real high. So I was just fooling around. But yeah, that that's definitely a band that also has done a lot. Like, that, that's a live band. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really what it comes down to with the whole concert experience. Are you going to see somebody who records music to play live? Or is it a band where it's like, yeah, they're not gonna like. It's, I guess somebody said Boston was one of those bands. Absolutely, like, the records sounded great, but then you saw them in concert, and you're like, eh, what? What happened? This is not the same thing. What
0: happened? <laughs> well, I
2: don't understand what happened. <laughs> but I, yeah, but I think the thing with Boston was that it was all Tom Schultz, So, and then he just got people to come in and re. Except for except for Delp on the vocals, he did everything else, and then he just hired people, but. Yeah, you, you want to see it. You want to see a tight band. Like, I would love, love, love to see ZZ Top someday only because they've been playing together for 50-something years. You know they can they can just sense what the other person's going to do before they even do it. Oh, you're going to drop out and play a little
0: bit of boom, and then... Hey Rush fans, we hope you've liked our two-part episode here on Rush, our very favorite band, and enjoyed us reminiscing on some of the shows we've seen, some of our favorite songs, favorite albums, and favorite eras. You know, what's your favorite era? Was it the hard rock driving in the first three albums? What about the heavy-duty prog, adventurous outer space, interstellar overdrive of the next few? How about the techno-pop Versions uh, in the 80s, once they got past the big time uh, in the late 70s, early 80s? Or what about the revamped, retooled, refunkified version uh, in the late 80s, early 90s? Or what about the latter day stuff where they really just kind of said, hey, this is what we do and plowed ahead? We'd love to hear from you. What about your favorite live albums? Gary talks about all the worlds of stage. I talk about how much I love show of hands. But what about exit stage left? What about different stages where they do give us a little taste? from Rush back in the day? What about the Grace Under Pressure they eventually released? Or any of the things they did uh, after 2000? We want to know about it. Tweet us at ugly underscore werewolf. Or check us out on our website, uglyamericanwerewolf.libsyn.com. And download and subscribe most anywhere that you get your podcasts.
2: And uh, that's what I kind of have a problem with. Oh, I... I love the Grateful Dead. I'm like, all right, well, cool. So what's your favorite album? Well, I don't really know. Okay, what's your favorite song? Well, I don't... Know. So then, no, the answer is no, you're not really a huge fan because, I mean, how do you not know that? Oh, they did this and this year and they played this song off of... Yeah.
0: And I'm with good. Deadheads, it's like, what's your favorite era? You know, was it when the Godshaws were there? Was it when Pigpen was there? Did you like the Brent Midland years? That's... Because they all are, are trading their tapes and their dick's picks and all that kind of stuff. And they want to know the era... They want to know the venue and talk about a band that mixed it up. No one Grateful Dead show set list was the same as the next. For fifty years, you know, they didn't just go out and play the hits. They did but, okay, they but
2: then you, you'd have to say that the, that if you were going to compare bands, like Grateful Dead, is the exact opposite of Rush. Yeah, they could play. They could just say, you know what, right now, forget it. I want to play a twenty-minute version of this. We're just gonna we're just gonna see where the room takes us. That's right. Where Rush, absolutely, they we're we're on a schedule here, right? Very
0: choreographed to the nth degree. Yeah, you're right. Both with ardent fan bases, but but different in that respect.
2: Yeah, like I saw it, somebody was complaining about the KISS shows, and they, there was a uh, clip of Ace from, I don't know, somebody's, you know, Joe's Garage in Corpus Christi, Texas, and they, you know, there was, they went a little bit longer on one of the songs, and somebody said, wow, you know, I wish KISS could do that. KISS is giant pyro, giant light show. They can't just say, oh, tonight we're going to do something. No. At this time, this happens. At this time, this happens. There's no room for improv- uh, improvisation.
0: Yeah. Not to mention, Ace used to say, especially in the later years when he was reunited with the band, he'd be like, uh, uh, you know, maybe I'm not playing my best tonight, but I'm really making the moves, right? I'm really putting on the show, you know, I'm, I'm throwing shapes and I'm in sync with Paul and that kind of thing when they're when they're going back and forth, something like that. And people would say, oh man, you were great tonight. You were really on. You sounded awesome, Ace. And he's like, and then some nights, I would really kind of try to concentrate on the playing, like really stick it. You know, make sure i It sounds perfect, and maybe I'm not swaying back and forth quite as well, or you know, with as much oomph as I usually do. And then I come off stage like, oh, you know, Ace, you're, you're kind of off tonight, weren't you? You know, so it, it, it's not even that musical with Kiss. It's really more about the show.
2: But yeah, it's yes, correct. You you want to see? Yeah, if you didn't see the the fire breathing or the blood spitting or the Ace, you know, blowing up his guitars, that's. Yeah, that's what you're there for. If they played everything perfectly, but you didn't see the show, you would be upset. That is correct. But I think back to Rush. I I just think that they were just so they they were so precise. Everything was precise, and and I know that they it wasn't by accident. They spent a zillion hours practicing, and even take going back over the old stuff and getting it pitch perfect every single night. And that's part of what you were paying for too. I think that was the real thing. Is you knew you were going to see a great show. Every, I think most other bands are like, well, maybe it's great, maybe it's not. I don't think, I don't ever remember anybody saying, eh, it was an off night for them.
0: No, and, you know, you see that. I mean, after the show, they get on the plane, and they pick up their book, and they read, right? Or, or Getty's there checking his rotisserie baseball scores, right? Or, or <laughs> he kneels out riding his motorcycle. Or, you know, through the 80s, he would ride his bicycle. He would get to town, and he would ride his bicycle all sorts of places, and then he just kind of cruise right into the back of the arena, before the yeah. show,
2: yeah, I think he said that he'd have like a he had a radius, some kind of deal, like you know, hundred miles or something of the of the spot they'd stop, drop him off, and he'd ride in. Uh, yeah, same thing. He he always needed something to to kind of sweeten the pot up for him, not just sitting on the bus for a hundred hours.
0: Right, you know, and then you know you go on the Motley crew plane. Well, it's much different on that plane. <laughs> there is all yeah. sorts of substances. There are all sorts of girls. And most bands will have substances and girls distract them. Kiss, half of Kiss, um, didn't have substances, but they had girls distracting them, and they still do. <laughs> yeah,
2: I don't. Yeah, I don't know whether. I mean, that could be a deal if they were Canadian. I don't know, but it just always seemed like they were. They were always focused on the task at hand. Not that it was a job, but it was kind of like a job. Their job was to to deliver this product to the audience. And well, where it seemed like you know, back to Motley Crew, that was kind of like a, that was a, a inconvenience in the giant party. That was
0: the excuse, right? Right. <laughs> that was the facilitation <laughs> of the party. Uh, yeah, and, and being that they're good family men, I mean, Getty and his wife are still together. Alex and his wife are still together. Neil lost his wife, you know, and child, and then he created a new family, and and now they've lost him, as we all have. But it's they're they're just normal guys. Who work hard or extremely talented and cared about each other. Alex and Getty have been best friends for like sixty years, fifty five certainly. And Neil, um, although he's the new guy uh, and is a little a little different, they you know they loved him. I mean, they wouldn't have made the rule of you no know, two to one if they didn't.
2: Yeah, there's a, there's a really cool uh, YouTube video where like they just go and have dinner, just the three of them. Yeah, and it's just interesting to watch them interact on a not. I don't. I have to go back and revisit that, but I don't think they really talk about anything band related. It's just three dudes having dinner, enjoying each other's company,
0: and and that's the loss. Obviously, the three of them don't get to hang out anymore. But also, because Neil was so smart, he could talk intelligently about so many different things, and was not only a great writer of lyrics, but a writer of books and, and novels and stories and true stories. You know, biographical stories. To Not have him in the world, even if he never played the drums again, we should have had him for another 15, 20, 25 years, and uh, that's that's sad. And, and here it is, January 7th, the one year anniversary of the loss of Neil Peart. It, it kind of has given me some time to put it in perspective, yeah.
2: And the same thing for me, too, just that finality of the whole thing, and you know, like we talked about before always having that even when they said they were going to retire even that little oh you say that but you know you know they'll be back somehow and Mm -hmm. you know hopefully they would maybe not put out new music but do something but yeah just that it, it, you know he there's not going to be any more books from him they are not going to be any more there's no more lyrics from him it's just yeah it's a huge hole in the music business
0: well russian rock and roll fans that wraps up our two part edition On Rush. Our very favorite live band to go see. The only band that I've ever camped out on the sidewalk to get tickets for. Glad that I got to share that memory with you all and with Action Jackson here on The Wolf. It's so sad to know that we're never gonna have a chance to see them again. I'll never be able to take my children to see Rush because we just missed out on it. It's just past the time. And that just shows you you have to live for today. And we're so hopeful that we'll get this whole COVID thing settled. We'll get the vaccinations out there and we'll be able to return to live music. Because right now, we're all missing opportunities to see our favorite bands or to explore some that maybe we had never seen before but wanted to see live and just never had the chance to. My feeling is, in later 21 and in 2022... We're going to see a big return to form. Everybody who can tour will tour, and people will flock to see them. I guarantee it. being deprived of live music this long is not something anybody ever thought would happen. And now that it's gone, gosh, we want it back so badly. I have a feeling this won't be the last time you hear from us on Rush. As our friends at, at Rush History 2112 have reminded us on Twitter... Some big anniversaries for some big Rush albums this year. It's the 45th anniversary of 2112. It's the 40th anniversary of Moving Pictures. So you gotta believe there's gonna be a reissue, a re release with maybe some kind of live stuff to accompany it there. 1991 saw the release of Roll the Bones, an album we talked about in depth. On our first episode, as that was the show we camped out tickets for, 1996 saw the release of Test for Echo, so it's the 25th anniversary there. And, of course, the live classic that followed right on the heels of moving pictures, Exit, Stage Left, is also having a 40th anniversary. So maybe we'll get some cool bonus material this year. That would be wonderful. In the meantime, everybody be cool out there. The next episode will be on the Def Leppard classic released 38 years ago this month, Pyromania. Jackson and I delve deep into how we discovered it, what it meant to us back in the day, and how it still sounds at this point. So until next time, folks, please visit us on Twitter at ugly underscore werewolf. Or check out our website where you can see all of our past episodes, ugly L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Until then, rock and rollers, be cool and stay safe.
1: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.